Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alpha. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we're joined by special correspondent Harry Lambert to talk about the future of the BBC. And you ask us, who was Keir Starmer's speech actually for? We're delighted to be joined today by Harry Lambert, our special correspondent. And I think it's your New Statesman podcast debut, isn't it, Harry? I do think I had an appearance in about 2015. But, ah, uh, okay. And- in your previous incarnation. My previous incarnation as a, as, a, as a former New Statesman writer. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for coming back. You've written the cover story of our magazine this week about the BBC. Why did you choose that subject? Because it's been a pretty good time for the BBC, really, hasn't it, with the virus? Yeah, well, funnily enough, I think we actually came up with the subject about a year ago when the government was still planning to, you know, dismantle it and sell it for parts. <laughs> and over the course of, of the year, because of COVID, as I said in the piece, you know, things really started to look up for the BBC and obviously you had a change in in tenor coming out of number 10 when uh, the likes of Dom Cummings left his role and since then you know things have things have definitely been looking up for the BBC so I, I guess it became a question of working out what was what was still problematic for them and and how they mattered to Britain it's a huge institution you know what what are the key questions really I, I think so it was a process of working out what that was. So as you say from the kind of conception through to the completion of this piece uh, quite a lot has changed what were your thoughts about the BBC at the start of the process and are they different now you've finished writing the piece yes that's a great question I think I mean it's really the climate that changed first of all you know my thoughts are kind of almost secondary I think if you look at the, the, the sort of things that were being said a year ago or rather in the past year you had you know the head of the select committee that investigates the BBC the parliamentary select committee Julian Knight saying um, the BBC license fees are an anachronism in a world of choice. Oliver Dowden said the old model just can't be sustained. And, you know, by the time I got round to speaking to key figures on the committee, like Damien Green, a fellow Tory, his view was, you know, trucking away the BBC would would be an act of uh, national lunacy in order to sort of get Twitter and get, get the modern media world that we have. And it's a precious thing. You know, my views on it would have been that the BBC faced a real threat from the hard right of the Tory party and that Johnson was willing to indulge that threat. And I think it's become increasingly clear that he's he's not willing to do that at all. And the appointment of both Tim Davy and now, perhaps even more importantly, Richard Sharp, 
this sort of urbane establishment figure as, as, as chairman of the BBC, I think, shows the direction of travel. So that was the big shift for me, realizing that the BBC is actually, it's not as imperiled as you sometimes hear. I think so many of these pieces that you read about the BBC sort of imply that the thing is going to kind of crumble and collapse within a, a year or two. And I, and I really don't think that now. That's, I think, one of the one of the most interesting things that struck me about the piece. I suppose that's the first half looking at the supposed threats of the BBC and how real that really is with all that kind of rhetoric. But I think I thought that then the bit which fascinated probably all of us on the podcast the most, because this is the bit that everyone who works in politics and journalism is obsessed with, is the bit that you get onto later on, which is, of course, the role of its politics team and whether it's political editor Laura Koonsberg, but also just the team based in Millbank have an outsized influence on the overall editorial direction of the BBC's news output and also how they are interpreting their mandate of impartiality, which is something that we've talked about on the podcast quite a bit because it is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But you you got a lot of good gear on that in your piece from speaking to lots of different anonymous figures within the BBC and sort of and from outside. So I wonder since that was one of the juiciest bits, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a sort of a flavor of the views within the organization about how the BBC is interpreting that mandate. Completely. No, that is the crucial question, isn't it? And, and, and I think what it really comes down to is whether impartiality means giving it straight down the middle, as someone said, you know, and complimenting the way the BBC does things at the moment, or whether in this world where maybe facts just sort of barely stated aren't enough, and you have to actually create a narrative as a political editor, and you have to really offer the viewer a sense of, of whether the thing you've been given is true or not. One of the things that I was told by a, a leading industry figure is that, and this is you know, arguably unnecessarily scathing, but they said, you know, an exclusive piece of journalism is a story you got yourself, not something a politician gave you. You get it through something called journalistic endeavor, not a text sent to you at 10 p.m. And I wouldn't have run that if it didn't come from someone with great authority in the industry. And, you know, that is a criticism that I think you hear of the way the BBC does things at the moment. They're a little bit too willing to carry the quote of the day from the government rather than putting their own stake in the ground, working out where they think things stand and not being not being overly directed by number 10. I think at the moment you've got a slightly problematic situation where number 10 really have the ability to shape the narrative almost completely. If they put out a quote, the BBC, you, you can be pretty sure will carry that above anything else. What do you all think about that? Do you think that's a, a problem? I really related to the part in the piece, and I think it's mainly from the reporters and journalists that you were speaking to, both on and off the record, about how the BBC does this great reporting, great investigating into the problems, you know, with government policy and their implications. But sometimes that doesn't marry up with the way that politicians are are challenged on certain programs or the way that government policies or government rhetoric is presented sometimes. So you've got both hands there, but sometimes the hands don't know what the other hand is doing. That's that's occasionally what I get frustrated about from BBC coverage, because often when I'm doing pieces about social affairs and things, I'm using BBC original reporting to, to back up what I'm writing because they are so plugged in and because they they are so relentless in their in their pursuit of, of scrutinising policies. But sometimes when you see a, just a Tory MP 
parroting the same old line and they don't get they don't get challenged on it you think yeah but you had that story on mm-hmm. social care cuts yesterday why don't you why don't you mention that and I think there's even a, an explicit thing in your piece where someone says oh I wanted to challenge a Tory MP who was saying something mm-hmm. that I knew wasn't true but I just didn't want it to look like I was giving him more grief than I was the other panelists and, th- and then you get that kind of apprehension and reluctance that comes in with trying to be impartial that you cover quite well in the piece too so I think I think I get that frustration from that gap, maybe, and and you tease that out in your piece. Yeah, and I think just to say, and I try and sort of touch on this in the piece, just to take Laura Kingsburg as obviously the major figure here. She's in an incredibly difficult position because if she does try and make sort of bolder judgments, as Ofcom itself, the BBC's regulator, has sort of suggested that BBC journalists do, and as as I mentioned in the piece, you know, past doyens of the form like Robin Day and John Cole have suggested that. BBC reporters should always do it. They do try and be bolder. They do try and be more forthright. And they do call a story, as a BBC News exec said in the piece that they, you know, to me that they should. If someone like Laura Kingsborough does that, then she's at great risk of being attacked from every angle. So I think she is in a really tricky position. And, you know, I'm glad I had some space to sort of investigate this in depth, but I still don't feel like there's a, there's a simple and satisfying answer to how you're meant to do this. Yeah, I think that you got the balance right in your piece, Harry, because I suppose Laura Koonsberg encapsulates all of these questions about the BBC. Mm-hmm. And as we know, just from doing journalism in general, it's easier to talk about these stories when when you put a human face on them. So in a way, thinking about the challenge Laura Koonsberg faces at the top of the BBC's political coverage is slightly easier to conceptualise and more interesting than thinking about a whole organisation. But I agree with you, it kind of goes beyond her. And I also liked that you pointed out in your piece, like it, it's not the most important thing, of course, but I, I did like it that you pointed out just how well-liked she is because I think that... I think it can be unfortunate sometimes that that is overlooked. Like I would say that personally, I you know I haven't been in political journalism for very long, and Laura Koonsberg has always been very supportive of me, and I know that she is very she makes an effort as an extremely busy woman to be really supportive of young journalists within her organisation and outside, and especially younger women in political journalism, but. I think that one of my favourite bits was you quoted John Cole, a great Belfast man and former BBC political editor, who was talking about how politicians, like he says, no politician can afford to spell out the whole truth of something. And so there's a there's a job of journalists to add the missing part. And I think it's that bit that can that can go so badly wrong. Like you don't get into trouble for saying what people think within a political party trying to understand the thinking within Downing Street within the top of the Labour Party or whatever but it's it's almost what you don't say that is the is the trickiest bit in impartiality and like getting adding those things in because you're never going to be penalized at the top of the BBC for failing to add something but sort of like the other way around yeah exactly and I think that's what we saw didn't we with with the Emily Maitland situation where BBC Chiefs felt that she added something in that was too much to the narrative there. And and then lots of people obviously found that the most compelling bit of coverage they saw on the BBC last year. And so, you know, talk about both Emily Maitlis and Laura Koonsberg, I think, because I think they're both, you know, terrific journalists, but they've they've sort of gone on slightly different sides of this line. And you just see how both of them have faced criticism for doing so. So I don't I don't envy the, the, the responsibility both of them have to carry each night in doing this job. But at the same time, I, I just had to be led by what I was being told by 
you know, both people in the industry and people inside the organization who felt this wasn't always done correctly. And so that's what the piece tries to capture. Yeah, one thing really reminded me of is a Conservative Minister once said the problem with all BBC panels isn't they said we all get the standard of scrutiny that the stupidest MP on the panel deserves. And they were just like, but, <laughs> yeah, but they, and then they proceeded to make a series of unflattering remarks about both their colleagues and MPs and other parties who, yeah, but their point, which I actually agree with, right, is that it is in the public interest to understand that Ben Bradley has not read the National Trust report. Like he just visibly hasn't then that is more embarrassing for Ben Bradley than it would be for Liz Truss, right? Yeah, someone who's, who has the exact same set of political positions, but yeah, like clearly has read it. Just because that's more embarrassing for Ben Bradley and therefore a programme with Ben Bradley on would be worse for the Conservative Party doesn't um, doesn't change than the, the one should do it. And I thought the really interesting quote, and it's 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 full of them, is, is the one about the BBC not understanding the power of its own audience. Because... It does often feel, I think we saw this with how they approached the TV debates and the Andrew Neil interviews, then it's not an organisation which often seems to realise that if you're a political party, you kind of can't play without the BBC. Completely. So I think one of the really interesting videos I saw in my research was actually, just to go back to her quickly, Laura Koonsberg's question for Donald Trump when the British press, including the BBC, went with Theresa May to the White House and... Koonsberg asks Trump such a direct and challenging question. And it's exactly the sort of question that lots of people would like her to ask British politicians. And I just, it's interesting the way, you know, she was completely fearless in that environment, asking the very first question in that press conference to the most powerful man in the world. And it just shows you that there's, there's this is clearly a different set of pressures operating in the UK, as opposed to when she's acting in foreign parts. And I don't know exactly what that the conclusion of that is. But as you say, maybe it's that the BBC should appreciate its own power in the UK and that they do have space to be to be bolder. I, what do you think of that? Well, I guess this is one of the reasons why I'm such a zealot for getting rid of the licence fee. Because <laughs> I, I think, you know, I mean, you, you have to think very carefully about what you replace it with. But if we were to say, endow the BBC right we would just say right you've got this endowment you can make money of your assets and you have a standing brief to to do x and you have a minimum service obligation to provide y and here's your founding charter Mm -hmm. or indeed if we were to do something lunatic like make it a subscription service which would be terrible for literally all of the rest of us because the BBC existing as a subscription service would cause people to prioritize subscribing to the BBC but if you had a the one I think the inevitable difficulty right is that if you have a license fee model, you have a payment mechanism that is regressive and you have a fraught relationship with the government of the day because there's always this lingering, oh, is charter renewal coming up? Oh, is is the license fee renewal coming up? Now, you could also fix that by lengthening the terms. Yeah, I kind of think that charter renewal should maybe be a thing that happens every like 30 years or something mm-hmm. because you're therefore highly unlikely to have a situation where the government of the day and the BBC of the day are looking at each other going, well, only one of us can come out of this collision the better. I do think one of the problems with the licence fee is it creates, we have this situation where we have a news organisation which has a huge audience, is a huge bulwark in the fight against misinformation. But still, I mean, I found the story about uh, Liam Thorpe, the Liverpool Echo journalist who was mistakenly registered as being 6.2 centimetres and therefore having, you know, the BMI of, you know, the world's fattest pancake essentially i found it funny but i was a bit perplexed as to how it ended up on radio 4 
but this thing it doesn't it doesn't fulfill all of its public service stuff very well but i think that's inevitable when it's continually in this kind of what's happening to our funding models which is why i think part of the solution this is just to endow the bbc free it from the day-to-day fear that the license fee or the subscription model or whatever comes next will be taken away from it and also that protects its you know vitally important role in the sort of infrastructure of british classical and alternative music without which you know we, we would not have a functioning scene for either without the bbc in its current form I also wonder, Harry, if one of the sort of smaller solutions is the one that's pointed to towards the beginning of your piece, which is the current employees of the BBC are worried about the BBC's newsmaking structures becoming ever more centralised. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I wonder if maybe the solution is is decentralising even more. Like the example I always give is is really how good BBC Northern Ireland is. We think that the you know the BBC team in Westminster have have a tricky mandate, but BBC Northern Ireland that's on a whole other level because you're really catering to two slash three different communities that have totally different conceptions of their own identity and what country they want to be in. The BBC gets it right. I mean, like BBC Northern Ireland's business and economics editor, John Campbell, has been the person calling the border down the Irish Sea caused by Brexit, the Irish Sea border, the entire time with no quibbles in a way that you wouldn't necessarily get from the BBC team in Westminster. Even, I think, you know, you mentioned Newsnight being sort of under threat. And there, I think there are always questions about whether with funding cuts it will be able to survive. I think it's a really great program and, you know, it has its own political editor and it has a Lewis Goodall policy editor and they each do their own thing. And I think empowering those people even more to do more of their own journalism rather than less so could be could be the solution. I don't know what you think of that. Completely. And that's, I think, you know, what the piece is trying to stress from, from having spoken to people is that was really the model for a long time. If you think about all the brand name shows that we're all talking about, you know, the Todays and PMs and Newsnight and everything else, these just started off as these tiny little ideas that were run by small teams and then developed into, you know, big brands. And now it's sort of the trend of the modern world, isn't it, for things to get centralized and brought together on the big hubs. And and that's definitely happening at the BBC. And executives there say, well, look, you know, we don't have much money and this is just the way you, you have to do it. And that's really an idea that's taken hold over 30 or 40 years, I'd say, across all of public life, which is if you're saving money, you have to centralise. And I'm not quite sure if that idea has ever really been, you know, the link between those two things. There's less money, so we need to grip control in the centre. You can sort of see it on one level, but I, I don't think there's any real basis for it. I think you could clearly have a, a cheaper, more decentralised model. There's no reason why you couldn't, but it's not the direction of travel at the moment. So yeah, I think you and I may may want that or or think of it in the abstract but it's just it's just not the way it's going and it's an internal decision it's not there's not not much that can be done once they've decided to centralize you go back to some comments from the 70s about the bbc and often when you speak to people who have been in the bbc for a long time about their current you know challenges and 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 especially the the threats from the government, they often say, well, you know, this is just a fundamental truth of the BBC as a broadcaster. They're always they're always in some kind of existential crisis. When you talk about how sort of Thatcher bottles reforming the BBC and how that's happened with successive governments. I, I, I interviewed David Dimbleby last year and he was saying there's always going to be these 
these kind of threats towards the BBC. And that, that means that it's doing something right because it's always having these criticisms from both sides. So what's different now about the position that the broadcast is in? Is it because the way that our politics is done is different? You have a quite a shocking quote in there where someone who you interview says that they still don't know how to deal with politicians who've discovered that they can profit from lying. So is it that our politics and, and our political discourse has changed, putting the BBC in a sort of more vulnerable position than it has been in the past? Or is this just standard what it's like for the BBC and always will be? Yeah, so I think I guess I'd say three things. Like one, absolutely, this is always the way it's going to be. And I think Stephen sort of touched on that. If you have this precarious funding model, then you're always going to be in perpetual peril. And, and no one who's worked there, I think, has ever felt like this is a secure position. And it's sort of designed that way. But to your point, I think there is something unique about the current trend, if not the current moment. Because, you know, as I say in the piece, I just don't think the DUC is in imminent danger. I think the current trends, though, are more concerning over the next decade, which is just, as you say, we are in a new political climate that where clearly there are fewer commonly agreed upon facts. And clearly, as a key a key figure said to me, BBC doesn't know how to deal with people that the politicians that, that, that have realized they profit from lying. And I think you're probably only going to see more of that over time. Hopefully, British society is held together in a way that American society hasn't been held together. And, and something like the strength of the BBC could well be a good reason why it does so. But But clearly, there's that threat. And in an online world where, you know, people can find their own their own facts, their own form of meaning, their own communities. It's very possible that you're going to get more and more sort of politicians elected who who represent a, a sort of narrow view and, and it's going to be hard for the BBC to deal with that. And then just finally on the funding stuff, I mean, I think it can get pretty boring when you start talking about the license fee and debt. So I, I didn't really want to do that. But, you know, as Greg Dyke said to me, I don't think it actually made it into the piece. He just said, you know, if you propose today to charge people £150 for a piece of equipment, everyone would laugh. And I just think the... The, the model that we set up a very long time ago that was initially sort of administered through the post office of paying a license fee just seems more and more antiquated. So it will have to change in some way. But Dimblebee's talked about how you could potentially just attach it to households. and uh, But at the same time, yeah, things, things are definitely changing and, and the BBC probably is going to need a little bit of a new footing in terms of how it's funded. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. section we like to call you ask ask us so we've had lots of questions about Keir Starmer's speech today the one we're going to be answering is who was today's speech for is it meant to have any cut through immediately or is it just for the commentariat 
I know it shows that I need to get out more. I mean, who doesn't? But the urge to be like, well, I'll tell you, it wasn't for lovers of good theatre was quite strong. But um, <laughs> all speeches are for the conflict. Like, the only speeches any leader of an opposition party ever gives that are for anyone, anyone who might, you know, decide an election are the speech immediately after they're elected and the speeches they give during a general election campaign. And everything else, to a greater or lesser extent, is kind of for the bubble. Yes, and I suppose it's difficult to tell which parts will cut through until you make that speech because you don't know. I mean, obviously, you'll have your beats in your speech that you really hope will make the clip on the news if indeed the news decides to clip your speech at all, which obviously the jury's out on that because a speech made by a politician not in election time, like you say, is it is not necessarily significant in and of the news agenda itself. But you'll you know you'll have your bits in there that you want to be clipped, but you don't necessarily know what's going to what's going to be the top line that might trickle through to a to a listener who's just a casual news consumer. And I'm not actually sure what's cut through from this speech because I haven't listened to the top of the news on the radio. Well, on my preferred lunchtime listening of the wonderful Marianne Hobbs, mm. Marianne Hobbs, I really should know that, shouldn't I? It was not clipped. At least I think it wasn't. I'm now going to have a crisis of confidence. It was not clipped. It did not cut through. I'm going to just confidently lean into mm. something I'm now concerned I'm wrong about. I mean, well, actually, I guess that shows its own, uh, it tells its own story, right? In that it was not clipped sufficiently dynamically than I, a person who has literally met Keir Starmer, whose literal job is to know whether or not mm. Keir Starmer has broken through on Six Music, did not notice and instead was like, oh, that song was good. I should screen grab that and add it to my to buy collection. So, yeah, it, it, it didn't cut through on the Stephen Bush metric of Marianne Hobbs' show. Well, we are the commentary. So in terms of what, what we were supposed to absorb from the speech and the way that it was briefed, how do you think that went, Alva? Because you actually wrote the morning call email on, on the um, prior briefings of the speech before he'd made it this morning. That says it all, really, in that the piece this morning was based off everyone in Westminster politics gets a sort of embargoed version of the key lines from the speech. And there are lots of conversations that happen before the speech takes place about sort of the strategy behind it and the key and the key messages. And so that so the morning call email, um, which is now also online, if people want to still read it, was more about the theory then the, sort of the jury was out on the, on the practice because he hadn't actually delivered it and they always hold a little bit back in terms of policy announcements until speech is actually delivered. I agree with Stephen. He didn't really give us the old razzle-dazzle Keir Starmer in, in the speech in that like it is just so hard to make a speech delivered over Zoom at a podium really excite. I suppose the overall objective is basically that this is... Contrary to beliefs, actually, that this is some sort of response to recent criticisms of Keir Starmer, this has really always been in the agenda. I can say that for a fact because they, they were briefing about Keir Starmer planning on making a, a major speech before the budget last November. So this, the, like, the two aren't really connected. But this was really phase two of... Keir Starmer's leadership strategy. His team have have always said that the first year would be about introducing Keir Starmer and fixing things, fixing anti-Semitism, fixing some other structural things. And then year two would be about presenting Labour's vision going forward. 
And I suppose there are sort of two prongs to that vision and to the narrative that they're going to be building up until the next election and potentially well beyond that to the end of the decade, which is that A, the UK's experience of the coronavirus pandemic wasn't just the product of short-term mistakes that Boris Johnson's government took during the crisis, but actually the product of much longer structural and, and ideological decisions. So the product of a decade of conservative decision-making, the idea is that coronavirus has has shone a light on the cracks that are there in British society because of conservative decision-making. And then the second part is is that Labour is the party that should be trusted to, to fix that. And sort of then baked in within the, the second part of that argument, Labour is saying that it can be trusted to, to do the rebuilding and the fixing in language that is really meant to shore up Labour's economic credibility again. So this was... Keir Starmer's, I think it was basically his first major speech on economics. He delivered one earlier this year, but it wasn't really so economics focused. So this was the first time that we had heard like this framing from him at length. He uses this sort of framing at PMQs as well. But but really the themes and the framing were not new. They would be familiar to, to listeners of this podcast or people who follow Annalisa Dodds around her shadow treasury team or Rachel Reeves or Ed Miliband at all closely. It's the it's all these themes that they've been spinning for for a year now of security and building economic resilience and the need to invest and repair the foundations and basically making the case that that is not just that Labour would be more generous with public spending and would be an anti-austerity party. They're they're sort of phrasing it differently and that it's more about Labour being trusted to spend the public finances well, arguing that they have a more credible economic vision. So that that was kind of the, the thinking behind it. We didn't know what the policies were going to be. I mean, Stephen has also written a really interesting analysis of, of this piece. I think he and I probably have different views on it. I think my own feeling is that the theory that I just outlined is completely sound. I don't think that many people think that Labour should be spinning a different narrative to that one. I felt like they didn't pick a policy that that demonstrated that very well. I I promised I wouldn't mention Rachel Reeves again, but I'm going to do it again. I feel like her speech last week or the week before was a really good example of really whatever bit we were talking about clipping a speech so you know whichever bit of her speech you had taken whichever bit you made the headline it would lead you back to the same point so I mean her speech was the Tories have wasted your money giving giving contracts during the coronavirus pandemic to their friends Labour wouldn't do that we would look after your money properly and here are like four four things we would do to end outsourcing and end cronyism. So whichever one of those sort of four lines you take, it all points back to a criticism and what Labour would do differently. Whereas I think like there was nothing really inherently wrong with this this new policy of a British recovery bond to help people save. But I just don't think that it pointed so well to the vision and the overarching analysis because, I mean... If you were going to be making a point about, for example, if you're saying that it's, you know, it's like the long-standing conservative decisions taken over the course of a decade that really led to some of the, the underlying weaknesses in UK society, 
maybe the specific example that you take would be that lots of households going into the pandemic had less than 100 pounds in savings like lots and lots of people in the UK have no savings at all and so you know we didn't have collectively that much economic resilience going into the crisis at a household level i think that would be an obvious thing that you would that you would pick out as a good example of conservative decision making gone wrong but you would need a policy that solves that and the recovery bond doesn't really address that because it's it's that's really designed for people who sort of have accumulated savings over the crisis those are not the same people at all and definitely there are plenty of people across the UK who have been able to work from home haven't had as many outgoings because you're not allowed to do anything at the moment people who've had incomes during this crisis have been able to save but many more people don't have jobs at the moment and didn't have any savings going into the crisis. And so I think that there's kind of a a disconnect between the big overarching message and the policy that they picked to demonstrate it. I don't think that you necessarily need very many policies in a speech. And, you know, arguably he could have made the speech without any of those policies. You know, all the stuff that was in Morning Call could have stood on its own. But I think if you're going to pick a policy, maybe one that that really ties in a bit better with the with the overarching message would be good, and one that's a bit more inspiring or or speaks to the to the core things that you're trying to get across. But Stephen, you were also writing on this today. Do you agree or disagree about the policy side of the speech? So, because the thing I found to do yet more promotion for our free morning email, the thing was slightly difficult. Is you know it's a recess, and it's like okay, so I need to say something interesting in the email which will, unless there's some kind of, you know, boycott organised by angry podcast listeners, will get many orders, more more eyeballs than this piece, and it needs to feel neat. So I was one of those things like, okay, well, I know I'm going to say about the policies, which I completely agree. They had, like, I think the recovery bond is a nice sort of, like, shared ownership, letting people have a bit of stake. Like, you know, there's lots of, like, nice social democratic-y stuff to it, but it's a policy with no smell, if that makes sense. Like, it doesn't convey anything other other than, hey, I'm Keir Starmer, I like orthodox social democracy. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with orthodox social democracy, but broadly, at this point, voters who know and care what orthodox social democracy is can be split into two groups, people who know that Keir Starmer is an orthodox social democrat, and people who have decided that Keir Starmer is not, because that's how they rationalise their own like terrible position on the issue of Labour anti-Semitism. That's it. There is no one who wants to hear another, like, hey, here's some middle-of-the-road, centre-of-the-Labour-Party stuff. From that perspective, I kind of assume this was primarily a speech given in a kind of, we need to set out what his economic stuff is. Because as Alva says, right, this was very much not a panic speech, right? But it was a speech in which all of the kind of substantial kind of policies that have a smell had already been done by Rachel Reeves and by Annalise Dodds in her Mace lecture. I essentially thought there were two problems with this speech, the first policy and the second policy. I liked both of them, but they added nothing. They had no real kind of vibe. And I suspect that this, the, the, the sort of original sin of, of a lot of this stuff is that is I think Keir Starmer in his heart of hearts agrees that they do not need this many policies at this stage. But instead of kind of going, OK, well, in that case, I'm just going to announce one or two or I'm going to say anything. It's just like, oh, what's some stuff that like, we want to do, but when we're not expecting to get news from at any point, let's just announce that sort of now in that these are all kind of like page 42 of a manifesto kind of stuff but they don't have a vibe they don't really contribute to a dividing line 
the other thing I thought was interesting, right, is broadly, right, what is the success of Keir Starmer's leadership so far? It's an, for the first time since the financial crisis, the Labour Party is led by a politician who is popular. His opinion poll ratings compare favourably to Cameron at this point. They obviously do not compare favourably to Tony Blair's, but, you know, bluntly, who do not a useful yardstick in lots of ways. But he has not fixed the party's other post-financial crisis problem, which is that it has not been trusted on the economy. And his strategy in this speech and in everything else is basically, I mean, it is John McDonald's fiscal strategy. It's the same fiscal framework. It's the same approach of just like, if I just use the words credibility and responsibility a lot, they'll like seep into it, like kind of radiation. And that was kind of my view on the speech. Because we talk a lot about cutthroat and we talk about music radio, but in some ways, right, the the proof of the pudding here is in terms of like the bit of the political commentariat, which has like managed to work itself into this kind of like labour crisis as, as, you know, as conservatives surge into relatively small league considering global turn towards surge towards incumbents is basically does it get all of those people to sit down and shut up i suspect it probably won't but i kind of think those people will all like wildly overreact either to like rishi sunak doing something silly in the budget or to the 2017 local elections map being run at a time when the Labour party is not polling at 27 percent of the vote nationwide so I don't therefore know if I think it did do that job. I do think the interesting question is, like, what is Labour's plan to fix the economic credibility issue? Which, when they were first briefing this speech, one of the reasons why they were like, well, look, we know this is the thing that we have to get right. I was about to say it's not clear to me that they have a plan, but I guess it's more honest to say I'm not really clear if there is a plan for how you fix that problem, because the thing that's worked for every other opposition is just like, if you wait long enough, the other lot gets blamed for a recession. <laughs> See, I think that actually on that one, we disagree, Stephen, because maybe I'm going to sound incredibly naive saying this, but I think that, you know, we've talked a lot about how how different in sort of optics Keir Starmer's leadership is to Jeremy Corbyn's. And so I do wonder if given especially that the consensus among economists has moved towards labor so there you know there isn't really really much appetite for lots of cuts and tax rises right now there's a sort of there's a move away from Rishi Sunak and what he would want to be doing um the, like the view is that you should be doing that in the longer term otherwise you would stifle the recovery and given that economic consensus has moved towards labor and then you know you talk about his you know Keir Starmer's reassuring chain I just wonder if maybe like all you do need is actually a labor front bench who are able to frame their economic project in terms of improving economic resilience rather than like framing their economic arguments in terms of of generosity I, I appreciate the point that it's not dissimilar to what John McDonnell was doing at all but it's it's such a different labor leader that maybe it will have cut through and maybe that's all they need I think I had a different perspective on the speech and its impact than both of you because when it was first briefed out I got this email you know the the, the emails that you get from from the Labour Party telling you the top lines and one of them said that he doesn't want to return to business as usual and I actually like I just felt such a I think I almost groaned out loud because that was something that Ed Miliband used to say back in his early leadership. He used to say, I'm not anti-business, but I am anti-business as usual. And then you just, you know, <laughs> there would be no substance behind saying that. And 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 like you say, the economic credibility issue continued to dog the Labour Party from, from then onwards. And I just thought, oh God, it reminded me of that very good podcast question that we had about 
you know, never mind repeating Jeremy Corbyn's mistakes, but will Keir Starmer be repeating Ed Miliband's mistakes? So I was very concerned that that's what this speech would have been like. And and actually, lots of his analysis of, of of the problem, particularly about the way that public services have been run down, and and how inequality is sort of economically unviable as well as morally bankrupt, were quite similar to Ed Miliband's analysis of the problems in this country. All of that, you know, is is fair to say, and 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 sounded quite similar. But I I thought maybe now it's different. You know, maybe now in this context making those arguments does have a little bit more resonance. I mean, you even have the Conservative Party itself, you know, they want to reverse Andrew Lansley's NHS reforms. Jeremy Hunt has said that social care cuts went too far. There's there's more of a acknowledgement that running the public realm down to its bare bones has, hasn't been <laughs> such a great idea, particularly not in the problems that the pandemic has exposed, which is kind of Keir Starmer's big idea for this speech was to say, you know, these long running policies from successive conservative governments are now, you know, they've now headed to a reckoning because of the way that coronavirus has affected society. So I thought, you know, in a way, it's a good time to make those arguments. It doesn't just sound rehashed, even if it is something that successive Labour leaders have been saying for a long time. And then add that analysis to these policies that I know I know what you're both saying, that they don't hang together very well and they don't sort of give you a particularly exciting vision for what Keir Starmer stands for. But they are kind of like Martin Lewis policies. <laughs> That's the vibe that I got from them. You know, OK, recovery bonds. OK, doesn't sound particularly sexy, but it's it's pretty good for everyone, right? If you've been amassing savings in lockdown and you don't know where to put them, you've probably read Martin Lewis's suggestion that you that you get premium bonds. Okay, this is quite similar to that. If you don't have very much money and your job and your livelihood has been affected and you're seeing, you know, the fact that your your local public services are very stretched and you're worried about the universal credit cut that the Conservatives still haven't said that, that they won't they won't institute, then you have the promise of of money going into the UK's recovery, which should, you know, which should be something that is reassuring. And then of course, if your business has been suffering or you're one of the many self-employed people who feel like they've been sidelined by this government, this startup fund might make you think, oh, okay, the Labour Party seems to understand what I've been trying to do. So, you know, there's something for everyone here. And they're kind of retail policies. They're kind of not very sexy, but they have they have that Martin Lewis vibe that I think maybe Keir Starber is trying to marry with the more John McDonnell structural analysis. And I think that kind of mix could work for him. So I'm going to be a bit more optimistic about, about this speech. Obviously, this speech in particular is not going to cut through and, and give voters that picture. But I, I I almost think that it does have the bare bones of a strategy that I could see potentially working in this context. I mean, uh, you're, you're right, other than I, I am shorter on this strategy than, than you are. But I think it's like, it's certainly plausible, right? Not least, I mean, I'm still struck by the astonishing write-ups of Annalise Dodds' Mace lecture, which were all written in this kind of labour moves towards IMF, OCD, IFS. And it's just like, um, that is not the direction that this movement is happening in. <laughs> But one, because no one likes to go, oh, I've changed my mind. It's always nicer to go, the Labour Party's changed its mind. Or indeed, yeah, whoever the other person is. Because, you know, the BBC in particular will always cover the beef rather than the meal itself. You know, Keir Starmer's decision to prioritise sending the strongest message on Labour anti-Semitism means he's going to be in litigation with the left of the Labour Party throughout the whole of his leadership. Which, you know, is sad for the left of the Labour Party, to be honest. It's And it limits his strategic options, but it means that 
everything he does, I think, is kind of going to get written up as being quite centrist anyway, by quite a lot of the media. Because, like, they essentially will have this thing of, those people are unhappy, therefore this is a departure from John McDonnell. And it's mm. possible, right, than, than just that, right? Just being, like, more reassuring. Economic consensus has moved towards what Labour was saying in 2017 anyway. And actually, like, the things he is just getting better at doing, I don't know if anyone saw, like, the clip he did and ended up, I don't think I heard on 16, I think my actual one, Jazz FM, but, yeah, he like, the clip in response to the 10-year thing where he went, you know, I've prosecuted a couple of people with 10-year sentences, and often what it means is the government isn't planning to get close to that. And he's just like, wow, well done. You're slightly crassly, but, you know, you're, you're successfully segueing in and used to bang up crooks. <laughs> it's possible, right, than, than the reassuring chin and the good haircut, the fiscal credibility rule from 2017 together does cohere into an election-winning offer. I, I think, like, you know, the, from different directions, John Rental and James Medway both doing the like kind of oh, well, what if the government is successful? Which I think is one of those things And people, it's really easy to waste time saying opposition parties should worry about if the government's successful. If the government is successful, they will either be re-elected or, much more unlikely, but or people will suddenly pivot to an issue they don't trust the government on. Yeah, because it's possible, right, two things could happen if, if the Conservatives do successfully level up. One, much more likely, in my view, they'll be comfortably re-elected with the Disclosure, I don't think the, the central scenario is likely at all. Or two, the fact they've been talking for five years about how important the environment is means that, you know, a bunch of Tories in the shires go walk about to the Green Party or the Lib Dems. That, like, sensible guy with the nice haircut who's talked about the environment it comes through in the Midlands and there's some kind of coalition government after. And those kind of things kind of happen orthogonally to the Labour Party. I kind of think this strategy is probably the best. I So I, I'm not as optimistic about it as either of you, I think, but it equally is probably the one I would devise at this juncture with the assets they have. Yeah, I also think like the fundamental strategy that I outlined at the start is is bang on the money and no one, as far as I can tell, whether they're on the left of the Labour Party or, you know, whether they're just a Conservative MP looking on, I think no one thinks that that is a faulty strategy or a bad narrative to, to begin to spit in. It's more about the individual policies today. They weren't like maybe the best pick, although you made a very good case for the Manoush, arguably a bit better than Keir Starmer did. I think that probably the more important thing is, you know, they did outline for the first time today the the line that we're going to be hearing for maybe the next decade. And it wasn't a bad one. And in fact, no one can really quibble with that. So that's probably the more important thing and the and the short-term policies even if they they didn't really excite or delight that much, are probably secondary or lower, lower down the priority list. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.